Hi, this is Ben Bova. I've written a lot of science fiction, and I think that I've devoted my life to trying to understand the opportunities and the dangers of the future. And if you listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, you'll begin to understand a lot of that, too. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you can be so easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, and we will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome to yet another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. The only podcast to guarantee that if you listen, you get to hear stuff. Uh, evidently, you hear stuff on other podcasts, but this is really different stuff because it's our stuff. This week, it's episode 447. That's right. You heard the number 447. We've been to a lot of places in this show. We've talked to a lot of people. We've talked to some really strange people. Uh, and every once in a while, we get to talk to someone who I've never heard of. I've never read anything by and somebody throws a book at me, and sometimes the person who throws the book at me is somebody I like. And in this case, it happens to be that it was somebody that I liked a lot. So I read the book, and then I, I threw the book at Cam. Hi, Cam. How are you tonight? I'm good. 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 I said the black Cam eye from the where book. the book hit me, but, you know, that's a different story. <laughs> Well, I, I have particularly good aim. Um, I am a fan of a lot of different kinds of sci-fi. Uh, I used to be a bit of a snob. I was the hey, it was the it it, it was the, uh, the the Grand Masters, the Asimovs, the Heinleins, the you know the Arthur C. Clarks. The Ray Bradbury's, the Ursula Ligans, or or it just wasn't worth my time, and and I've been proven wrong, literally hundreds of times, to the point where I've stopped being stupid about stuff like that. So when this book hit me in the forehead, uh, the first thing I looked at was, okay, the guy who wrote this book has won the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. Okay, nice bona fides. And yet, I didn't recognize the name. And then I saw the style of the, of the book, which is an alternate histories book, a style of which I have come to really, really enjoy only because 
sometimes they're written so silly and so sloppy that you sit there and you giggle through it. And other times they're so sharp and they're so wonderful and they're so detailed that you sit there and and you're with it the entire time. It is my pleasure, my honor to introduce to you a a writer that I am so pleased to be able to have on the show tonight, Robert J. Sawyer. Rob, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Oh, not as delighted as I am, as we are to have you here. The name of the book is called The Oppenheimer Alternative. And for those of you who, upon hearing the title of the book, can't figure out immediately what this book is about, uh, it has to do with the creation of the ball bearing, right? <laughs> it has to do with an event that happened 75 years ago and will be remembered for the rest of time as one of the signal events in human history. 75 years ago this summer, the world's first atomic bomb was set off. The Trinity test in Alamogordo, New Mexico, shortly followed just three weeks later by the use of two atomic bombs to bring a decisive close to the Second World War. A thousand years from now, when we're naming the events that were important from uh, human past, the harnessing of the atom will be right up there with the first footsteps on another world. It it, it will be right there with fire, Mm -hmm. the wheel, and the harnessing of the atom. You mentioned, absolutely mentioned fire. I just want to say my book is the Oppenheimer Alternative, but the great nonfiction book has the perfect title about Oppenheimer. His biography is called American Prometheus because you draw exactly the parallel. This is the real human story of taking the power of the heavens, the fire that burns the stars and bringing it under human control and the hubris it takes to do that and the price that is paid having done it now rob what you've done in this book and by the way this book before we even get into what the book's about which by the way i i can't i can't oh it's like sitting down in front of a sirloin steak and going i am so hungry And I want this meal to last forever. But before we get into that, the amount, this book is actually two separate parts. It is real up until Fat Man and Little Boy. It is absolutely 100%, as near as I can figure out, accurate. It is almost as if that's a biography because in that first couple hundred pages of the Oppenheimer alternative, you feel as if you are standing next to Robert Oppenheimer the entire time of his 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 
work, his inside his mind, inside his his lab, inside his his emotions throughout that entirety of his life. Am, am I wrong? No, you're exactly right. Uh, Oppenheimer was an absolutely fascinating character to write. And for me, this is my 24th novel. For me, it was a particular challenge because I wasn't making him up. We've already mentioned that there's a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of him. There, in fact, are more than a dozen different books singularly about Oppenheimer, plus the many others that are about the Manhattan Project, of which he was the scientific director. So to, I couldn't make anything up. I couldn't make up, you know, his physical description. I couldn't make up his mindset. I couldn't make up his habits, his twitches, his peccadillos, of which there were many. I had to learn about them. And, you know, he's one of those characters who in some ways is so over the top and larger than life that if I hadn't had the excuse of saying, yeah, but that's the real guy, people would say, oh, come on. I mean, he's a super genius and he speaks all these languages and women fall head over heels in love with him at the mere batting of his icy blue eyes. I mean, you might as well be writing, you know, a, a, a classic comic book superhero instead of a real flesh and blood human being. But he was all those things. J. Robert Oppenheimer, incredible character. But the killer is... You've got two separate books here that you very neatly, like like with almost a surgical precision, said, here's a biography of this gentleman. Here's a biography of this span of time and these people within it and you spared no detail in 20, 25, 30 people who you were very honest, if not cruelly honest in many cases, to show each one's foibles as well as uh, uh, there, there's a particular fight uh, between two scientists where Oppenheimer plays the uh, the referee between uh, uh, Edward somebody Teller, making yes. Edward Teller and Hans Beta. Yeah. Yes. And and you know Oppenheimer is almost looking at it humorously as the two of these people are, are just losing their mind in anger over a misplaced decimal. Yes. So this is the beauty of these characters. Every single character in this novel is a real human being, not just Oppenheimer. I just dropped two names who, you know, deserve novels of their own. Edward Teller. Oppie was the father of the atomic bomb. Teller was the father later of the hydrogen bomb. Hans Bethe, who was the person who figured out and won the Nobel Prize for 
figuring out how it is that stars produce energy. Uh, also in the book, of course, Albert Einstein, uh, Werner von Braun, who I think we'll talk about later, uh, <laughs> I, I Robbie, another Nobel laureate, Enrico Fermi, another Nobel laureate, ha Richard Feynman, another Nobel laureate. These are the people that I got to uh, write the story of and then write sort of the sequel, the life that they wish they'd had perhaps after World War II instead of the life that they actually got. And at one point, at one point after the Second World War ends and there is a general growth Ethical question. Yeah, that <laughs> good of you to jump in there. Was he going to go with a general the uh, the noun or general the adjective? <laughs> yep, it's an ethical no, question. It's the adjective. There, there was a general <laughs> ethical question. Was the purpose to save lives? Was the purpose to save American lives? Did it actually do either? And as we work our way through this moral dilemma, you turn what has become a biography into an alternate history. Yes. You know, Oppenheimer... Uh, did make a deal with the devil. In fact, his best friend, Hocan Chevalier, called him a Faust yes. of the 20th century. And the, when you make a deal with the devil, you never come out on top. That's the rule of the game, right? But I wanted Oppenheimer and the others to get a shot at redemption. Uh, they, almost every one of the people involved, with two notable exceptions, one we've already mentioned, Edward Teller, and the other is the general who, uh, who you didn't go with when you were talking about a general ethical issue. General oh, I wasn't, wasn't going to mention right, right? Leslie R. Groves. Those are the two guys who never regretted their involvement with the Manhattan Project. Yep. Almost everybody else, whether it was even before the bombs went off, as Leo Zillard did, or whether it was sometime in that 72 hours between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is when Oppenheimer had his change of heart, when they did it, actually it was after that, it was uh, immediately after Nagasaki, when they did it a second time. He was cool for 72 hours. Okay, we had to do this. What? We've done it again? What, they haven't even had a chance to digest what we did the first time. And we've done it again. So I wanted to give these guys a shot. You know, Oppie, if there's one line of Hindu scripture that history buffs know if they're not Hindu themselves, it's Oppie's famous statement, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is what he thought after the Trinity test 75 right. years ago. Right. And I thought, well, here's the, my novel in a nutshell. Give the guy the chance and his colleagues to turn it around, and if they're successful, be able to say, now we are become life, the saviors of our world. That's the Oppenheimer alternative, the alternative history, the other timeline, the other life path, the other choices they might have made in response to a science fictional scenario I put in front of them that maybe would have left them being remembered much more fondly in most cases than they are today. 
And it's interesting you mentioned that because that's the part that really hooked me was the fact that it's and I will speak to briefly what it was is that they discover while they're looking into this, they come to a realization that there's something not quite right with the sun. You know, while they're they're studying fusion, fission, and they're they're looking for you know, you know information, they 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 look at these past pictures that I'll use the word pictures in quotes of the, the solar sun. spectrogram, solar spectrogram, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they see something in one of them that shouldn't be there, and that is where the whole thing turns. Where it it because otherwise. The last half of the book, I actually had to do some research on my own because I knew the Manhattan Project, but I didn't know Project Orion. Yes, or which the is whole also history, real. Which is very real, and that surprised me. Or, well, I did know about him lose, uh, Oppenheimer losing his security clearance, but how you cleaved so closely to the history is still very much real, except for that one thing, and that's how well, they deal with this, yes. with this, what they found the spectrograms. But I'll even say this, Hans Bethe, who is the guy in my novel who has the anomalous spectrogram, he was the guy, as I alluded to, he won the Nobel Prize for figuring out how stars generate their energy. But in 1938, when he published his paper, he was wrong originally when he said how they did it. From our perspective now, he said there's this complex cycle of uh, fusion reactions, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. The problem is our sun is not hot enough for that, um, that kind of fusion. What was subsequently decided is that it's basically a helium uh, sorry, a hydrogen-hydrogen fusion producing helium. In, it's a little more complex than that, but basically that's how our sun works. How did Beta get it so wrong? Well, in real life, Beta says, whoops, I screwed up, I guess. In my novel, I say, no, he didn't get it wrong. In 1938, the sun was hotter than we perceive it to be today. Instead of being about 20 million degrees, as Beta measured it in 1938. It's only about 15 uh, million degrees Kelvin um, uh, today. And that there was some sort of solar, I call it even a solar indigestion, leading to the sun belching out its outermost layer. It's working its way through the sun right now from the core to the surface. And sometime in the next decade from now, the 2020s, it will expel its surface and destroy Earth, not to mention the planets closer to the sun than the Earth, which are, of course, Mercury and Venus. But that that scientific fact that Beta thought in 1938 that the sun was much hotter than we think it is today, that's really true. He really did take those measurements and think the sun was quite a bit significantly hotter in 38 than anybody measured it before or since. And that's where it really gets interesting is because you have these brilliant minds that created a force of massive destruction and as it as it says on the, the the jacket cover you know what if they stayed together after the war to save lives and yes. they literally have to put their brains together and go okay what do we do next how do we fix this problem and they split up into three groups which was absolutely fascinating um is and I, like I said, I don't want to get too much into this, but they come into these three different possibilities. Yes. Well, technically two. Um, 
and I'm going to, I've forgotten one already, but the third, <laughs> this, yeah, but there was, it was fly us, fly everyone into space. Oh yeah. That was the other one. Shield the earth somehow. And then they, they set this whole group with Feynman and a few others together and said, just think of weird ideas that you think That's might right. work. That's right. What we nowadays call a skunk works, if they have it at a corporation. Lockheed Martin is where the original skunk works was. Yep. Where yep. it's just, you know, working on blue sky. And Google we used to be famous for this. That Friday afternoons that Google employees could work on whatever they wanted because you might come up with something that's worthwhile. So that's the, the skunk works group that I have there. And yeah, you know, the great tragedy was at the end of World War II, we had gotten together the best and brightest physicists in the free world at that time. They were all working together. And then, of course, the second atomic bombs dropped August 9th, 1945. Well, what did these guys do for a living? They were university professors. And in real life, they scrambled to get jobs starting for after Labor Day for just, you know, three weeks later to be teaching again. And it's in some ways, of course, you can well understand that they'd been living in a desert on a mesa in what used to be, uh, if they were lucky, boarding school residences. And if they were unlucky, just shabby prefab homes that have been thrown together in a, in a rush. Most, most of them were in shacks. That's right. Shacks. Absolutely. And so what a notion, I thought, to let them stay together, let them continue using their brilliant minds for a bigger project than the one that they'd been together. They'd only been together for only three years on the Mesa and let them stay together for another 20 years and see what they come up with. That's the Oppenheimer alternative. And I think that's really where this whole thing turns in. It becomes really fascinating to watch these minds work. And this is where I will try not to give away too much, but they come up with these brilliant concepts and these brilliant ideas but at the same time you're watching them fight the very political world they have around them in fact they have to bring groves back in on this because they need that person that can play the political political games and this is all this, this is where it's like dome said this is such a fascinating book because it cleaves so i mean it's all historically accurate minus the sun going boom but it's it's the fact that it, it just cleaves so close to reality and and, you know, how we know that the, the world actually works in some ways. And so what what makes it what makes it fascinating. And now now, God damn it, I have to read more of your books. But what makes it fascinating <laughs> for me is that through that first half of the book which was is essentially the biography part i felt like i was in that i was there i was i was i was standing in that room i could smell the cigarette smoke i i could feel the desert heat i could i could i could i could hear the venom in Oppie's wife's voice. Well, thank you. You know, you're exactly right. It, to try and capture that time was a challenge. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1945. There are not that many people. You have to be 75 years old to be alive in 1945. Probably have to be 85 or 90 to have any real memories 
of my, World War II at this point. And so point, to capture it is very is, difficult. But my point there is, is when we got to the second part of the book, I never stepped out of those rooms. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this really special in terms of an alternate history. This is not something that you can step out of the room of. This is not something you can say, ah, but that's not, that's not the character. Oppenheimer remains Oppenheimer. The characters remain true to themselves. Einstein remains true to himself. And because of that, the premise that you set to make happen uh, at the point at which you switch gears works. Well, thank you. You know, it's supposed to be seamless. So I'm glad that it came off that way. And these characters, you know, I mean, I spent four years writing this book. That was my next question. Four years, (laughs) of which which a, a year, year and a half was just research before I did anything just to get to know these people. And I feel like, you know, when I say that, get to know them, of course, they're all dead now. Very sadly, I have to say, one was alive when I finished the book, Freeman Dyson. And I sent him an autograph bound galley, a dance reading copy. And he died two weeks later. I got a very nice blurb from his son, George, who was the principal chronicler of his father's work on Project Orion, the uh, atomic uh-huh. bomb propelled spacecraft we talked about earlier. But I feel like, and I want my readers to feel like, they actually knew these people, even though, with the exception of uh, Louis Alvarez, who I did know, um, had met. I'd never met any of the other ones. Most of them were dead. Uh, you know, we're recording this. I know it's going to air on uh, Saturday night, but this happens to be the particular day we're talking on, the 50th anniversary of the death of General Leslie R. Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project. Died 50 years ago today. There was no way that I could interview him, but I like to think that I know that guy. I never met him, but I spent years inside his skin and oppies and, oh, my God, Albert Einstein's. Uh, What a treat it was as a writer to do that. So I wonder, um, a lot of of fiction writers, and I I almost shudder to call you that at this point, (laughs) but a lot of fiction writers spend some time putting together a Bible in which they have a character and those, that character's likes, dislikes, moods, attitudes, uh, things about them that are special, things that that character does that absolutely doesn't do. Did, did you have a Bible that you worked with so that when you got to a point where you had two characters working together uh, and you had a question about would they do this or did they do this or is this historically accurate? Did you, did you have a way of going back and checking it? Or were so, you just, yes. No, no. Ah. I, I was very well organized in a sense. Um, I spent a fortune buying ebook editions of all <laughs> the books I could get. 
based on the Manhattan Project or on Oppenheimer on the development of the atomic bombs, starting certainly with American Prometheus, which we already mentioned, right. and Richard Rhodes's great also Pulitzer Prize winning history of the Man of the Manhattan Project called The Making of the Atomic Bomb. And I knocked all of them down to pure ASCII plain text, threw them into a textual database, and had it on my hard drive so that at any point I could search on whatever it was that I had a vague memory of. Yes, I'd read all these books. I read over a hundred books on the topic and I have a good memory. I used to be captain of a pub trivia league team. So, you know, I could find, I could say, okay, I know that beta said something about carbon, nitrogen, oxygen fusion, as we were talking a few minutes earlier. Well, in two seconds, I have every reference to that. And from all those books on my screen to nice. use as research. So I spent the money to make it possible to have it's a unique database. I don't think any other researcher in this area, including historians, have probably spent the money and, and created that kind of uh, uh, database. On top of that, huge collection of documents. General Groves donated his papers, as, as one does, to a university. And they were all uh, made into PDFs, and I downloaded all of those and then ran OCR, optical character recognition, on yep. them, then indexed all of that so that I could find any fact very quickly. And that made it not fast going, but it certainly made it a tractable, a doable project to deal with all these facts and figures and get them right every single time. That's insane. Well, it's, it, you know, <laughs> they called me mad at the university, as they did with most of these characters, right? The one thing I have learned here is there's a fine line between madness and genius <laughs> in writing about these guys. And maybe, not that I'm a genius of anywhere near the caliber that these guys were, but I understand that there's an obsessive quality to... Uh, to an intellectual effort that you just keep following your nose and never giving up. That's the difference between a great scientist or a great researcher is there's this little inconsistency. And instead of saying, eh, who knows, or it could be either way, spending a day or a week tracking down, oh no, those three guys who said it the other way are quoting the secondary source. But here in Groves' archive in the primary source is the reality. As a little example, you mentioned you love uh, Dome, you mentioned you love Robert A. Heinlein. Yeah. Heinlein, sometimes for those who like the term sci-fi, some don't, some do. So, well, Heinlein coined that term. Well, yes. you know, if you go and you do the research, you find, no, the actual papers, which are in the Heinlein archives, he quoted the term sci-fic, S-C-I hyphen F-I-C. You, you know, you're and somebody. Right. And somebody mistranscribed it, but not Heinlein as yeah. sci-fi. He did not like the term sci-fi, but it becomes part of, you know, it gets quoted apocryphal. and quoted again, it becomes, apocryphal. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had to sort through the apocrypha about these historical figures, because although, as I said, almost all of them are dead, their children or their grandchildren or their graduate students are still alive. My great friend Gregory Benford, who wrote his own fine novel about the Manhattan Project called 
the Berlin Project, uh, was Edward Teller's grad student. And he read my book in manuscript and was able to give me insights. Oh, my. Uh, No, when when I said it's insane, I I meant that in the most positive way possible. (laughs) In the best possible way. (laughs) insanity, Insanity like that is hard to find these days. There are too many people looking for the easy way out. And when, you know, when they find it, they, they just keep, you know, running it through the goddamn Xerox machine over and over and over again. And well, it's you know, just you're exactly right. At this point in my career, now you've only just discovered me, but I'm 30 years a novelist, 24 novels out now, won over 60 awards for my writing, including the ones you named at the beginning, Hugo Nebula, John W. Campbell Memorial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to write another book for money at this point. I only have to do it because it's a challenge. I don't want to do anything easy at this point in my life. There's no point in going and saying, okay, I can write a sequel to this novel that was a success, or I can, you know, do an easy little action adventure or, or uh, space opera science fiction. If it isn't worth breaking a brow sweat over, it isn't worth me sitting down and working on it at this point in my career. And, and by the same token, after, uh, 446 of these mothers uh, doing this for close to 15 years. And frankly, uh, I have not once looked at the numbers to see how many listeners I have. People ask and uh, my staff keeps wanting to tell me and I don't care. My assistant does the same thing. The royalty statements come in, they're cataloged, they're checked to make sure if they're accurate. I never look at the figures. I don't care. I'm like you. Exactly. No, I don't care. I care that everybody who reads my books on, a, you know, that people will try them and don't like them and never read another one. That's fine. But the people who are my I'm regular readers, yep. I'm good with that. I'm, I, my books aren't for everybody. Your podcast isn't for everybody. Chinese food isn't for everybody, right? People no. have tastes. Everybody should eat Chinese food. No, you're totally <laughs> wrong about that. <laughs> but... Uh, But the people, all I care about is that there's an appreciative audience. The size of that audience, you know, I I do fine financially. Uh, If I was starving, I might have to say, you know, okay, there are only eight people on the planet and four of them are related to me who want to read my books, right? I might have to, but at a certain point you can say, whether the audience is gigantic or whether the audience is minuscule, it's loyal. And yep. that is the most important thing of all. What I'm hearing from you is when it stops being fun, you'll stop doing it. I said after my previous book, which came out four years ago, Quantum Night, it was called, that I was done. And I really thought I was for a few months after I finished it. And then Oppie came into my life. The character, the person, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And even before him, Leo Zillard, who is the man who actually conceived of the runaway uh, nuclear chain reaction that is uh, what powers a fission bomb. Uh, he's the guy who wrote the letter that was signed by Albert Einstein that mm-hmm. urged Franklin Delano Roosevelt to get into uh, the development of bombs for the United States. Um, when these characters took hold of me, I realized, first I was just reading about them for pleasure. I was just curious. I thought, no, there's a book here that has to be written. And if it takes, 
years to write. That's fine. I'm going to take the years. And I did. It was four years between novels for me. As I said, you can do the math. I'm 30 years a novelist, 24 novels. Ain't no way most of them took four years, given that, uh, <laughs> those figures. Yeah. You know, and I try and do a weekly podcast. Sometimes I do one a month. <laughs> sometimes it's for health reasons. Sometimes it's mm. because I'm bored. Uh, and, and, you know, when I used to do it on, uh, on uh, uh on radio um it was a whole different story which is why we don't do it on radio anymore <laughs> well one of the reasons but uh doing it doing it on the web like this makes my life a lot easier what's next so in theory <laughs> i am starting another book in th- no we you know what uh, i'm writing a book that will at first be an exclusive audible audiobook Nice. And then be published in print. And they made me an offer that I was going to refuse. In fact, I said to my agent, eh. and then he came back and said they've added a substantial uptick <laughs> to the money. And oh, I thought, okay, nice. I'm ready to go. And then I wake up this morning, the day we're recording this, and I'd also do script writing. I had a TV series on ABC some years ago called Flash forward starring joseph fines based on one of my novels so i read the hollywood reporter every morning the online version and there's the head of, of original programming for audible got fired over the weekend so i think the project is still going ahead as an audible <laughs> but even if it isn't i'm going to write the darn thing and all i will say is science fiction is very often a metaphoric way of dealing with our real world realities and the real world reality of how we are going to go back to an actual existence after all these months. And it may turn out to be years of mostly virtual, virtual existence. Thanks to COVID-19, how it will change the human condition, human, human interaction. And that's, uh, that's the next project. And, uh, I literally, as we're speaking, this is the week where I'm starting it. And assuming Audible, actually, the contract actually materializes, it'll first be an Audible. Uh, you'll be able to hear it, and then 90 days later, whatever it'll be, uh, then it'll be out in print. Rob, I'm looking forward to it. I truly Thank am. You, Thank you. I, I, I truly am. Um, this, this has been a treat for me, a, an absolute treat. Uh, the whole Oppenheimer alternative as as a story worth telling as a story worth writing as a story worth experiencing and for me has just been wonderful it makes me want to now turn back time which is kind of funny considering the book uh and (laughs) go through and and read about everything you've ever done which i I'm going to kind of try and do, which is difficult because I have to go through two or three books every week because of my job uh, here. But, uh, man, thanks for coming by, and you're welcome here anytime. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. I'll take you up on that when the new book is ready. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. We've been talking with Robert J. Sawyer. His book is called The Oppenheimer Alternative. The links to where you can find it will be attached to the podcast. You're an idiot if you don't read it or you don't listen to it. 
And I'll tell you right now, my 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 point of view is is uh, obviously uh, my point of view. And I usually tell people, give it three or four or five uh, chapters, and if it hasn't caught you by then, put it away. No, 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 not this time. Take it to the end. Don't give up. Never surrender. It's worth the effort. And we're done. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watts sauce we have. We love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. Their grooves can be found on lawrencemademecry.com. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying... Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night, everybody.